23. And this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. I think that you're going to enjoy it. And if you're visiting with us, we hope you have your Bibles. And if you don't, there is a Bible on your table. And feel free to pick that up and turn to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 23. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew uh, for several months. We'll probably finish chapter 23 in two or three weeks, and then we'll take our break for the summer, and we'll go into the book of Psalms, Psalms for the summer, and then we will finish up Matthew in the fall and begin a new book. Now today we're going to look at the last of five of Jesus' discourses or speeches. He has five major speeches or discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. The first major speech was his Sermon on the Mount. That was chapters 5 through 7, three chapters. His last major speech begins in chapter 23, and it goes from chapter 23 to chapter 25. So if you have a red letter edition, you'll notice that those three chapters are all in red, and that's Jesus' final speech. His first speech, the Sermon on the Mount, opened up with blessings and reward. Blessed are they who are meek, you know, and so forth. This last speech opens with warnings and woes, judgments. So, you have the first speech, blessings, and the last speech, judgments. Of the five speeches, every one ends in the same manner. And I'm not going to turn you to all of them, but I will turn you to the end of this speech. And if you look at chapter 26, in verse 1, it says this. Chapter 26, in verse 1. So you see all that red letter, Jesus finishes his speech, and here's how what it says in chapter 26, in verse 1. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, Every one of his major speeches ends with the words, and when Jesus had finished uh, speaking these sayings. So we have these five speeches in common in this way. So we're going to look at the last speech. begins in chapter 23 and verse 1. Okay? And we're going to go to verse 12 today. And here's how we're going to outline the passage. Verses 1 through 7, Jesus speaks of the Jewish leader's behavior. Verses 1 through 7, he speaks of the behavior of the Jewish leaders. And then verses 8 through 12, he speaks of the behavior of his own followers. Okay, First seven verses, the Jewish leaders, the last few verses, his followers. Let me show you that division. How you, let me show you how you understand these things. How you could read the passage just the way I do and see that division so very clearly. For example, in verse 2, it talks about the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders. Now look at verse 3. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do. Do you see that? Look at the end of verse 3. According to their works. For they say. Look at verse 4. And they bind. See? And then in the middle of the verse. But they themselves, see, will not move... Uh, will not move them with one of their fingers. Look at verse 5. All of their works they do to be seen. They make their phylacteries. Look at verse 7. They love the best seats. See? All is a they, 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 they. You see that? That's verses 1 through 7. 
Now look at the next division beginning in verse 8. But you, you see that? But you, look at this. For one is your teacher. Look. And you are all brethren. You see that? Notice how it's you, you, you. Look at verse 9. Do not call anyone your father. Look at this. For one is your father. Look at verse 10. And do not be called teachers. For one is your teacher. You see that? But he, Look at verse 11. But he who is greatest among, look, you. So you see the division? The difference is between them and you. The religious leaders and you. The difference is in behavior. So let's look at the behavior of the religious leaders, what Jesus says about them. First of all, notice whom Jesus is addressing. Look in verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes, that would be the crowds of pilgrims, that have followed him into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, and to his disciples. <clears throat> Most likely he's speaking on the portico or the porch of the temple, and a crowd gathers around him and he begins to speak. Most likely uh, people who are looking to him as for some leadership. Notice the subjects of his discourse. Verse 2. And here's what he said. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So we have two groups he's going to talk about. First are the scribes. These are the copyists. People who copied Old Testament scriptures by hand. And eventually evolved into becoming the interpreters of the scripture of the law. And the Pharisees, second group, who were laymen who were trying to protect the traditions of Judaism. A group of pious laymen. So we have the Pharisees here. Now the Sadducees are not mentioned here. Okay, he's just going to talk about scribes and Pharisees. Remember the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay? If you want to know a real quick difference, it's this way. Pharisees are associated with the synagogue. There were synagogues sprinkled throughout all of Israel. And the Pharisees were laymen who were associated with synagogue. The Sadducees were associated with the temple that was located in Jerusalem. So, one group's a group of synagogue leaders, another group is a group of temple leaders. And the one group, the Pharisees, are pious people. They don't want to rub shoulders with Gentiles or sinners. The Sadducees are real compromisers. They'll rub shoulders with Roman officials and all kinds of corrupt people. So this is talking about the Pharisees. Notice it says the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So this is the issue. They sit in Moses' seat. What does that mean, they sit in Moses' seat? Uh, it means that uh, they claim to be Moses' successors. Moses was the great lawgiver, and now they are protecting the law. They are interpreting the law of Moses to the masses of people. Now, Jesus doesn't believe that they are the official interpreters of Moses' law. This is their own claim. Uh, Jesus claims to speak for God, doesn't he? Not that he really believes that they do, but this is the claim, and I think the people look to them as the protectors of the law who speak for God. So I think here that Jesus is not making a statement of fact. I think he's being sarcastic. Okay? And you'll see why as we go through. So now Jesus gives a command. Look in verse 3. Here's his command. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, to observe that observe 
and do. Again, I think that's sarcastic. He doesn't want the people to follow what these guys say. Why do I say that? Because many times Jesus is saying, says they misinterpret the Scripture. If you've been with us in Matthew, you know He condemns them. He says your beliefs are erroneous. But I think He's being sarcastic. He's saying, go on. Whatever they say, do it. That's what you want to do? Yeah. Go on. I think it's a sarcastic statement. He certainly doesn't want the people to... to now maybe He's saying... When they're right, do what they tell you to do. It could be that. But he obviously doesn't want them to do it at all times. Now here's a caveat. Look in the middle of verse 3. But, do not do according to their works. In other words, don't follow their example. If they tell you don't kill, well, I mean, obviously, that would they're right on that. So you could obey, obey that. But don't follow their example. Why not? Look what it says at the end of verse 3. For they say and do not do. They don't practice what they preach. They don't practice what they preach. That's why they are hypocrites. They have one standard for themselves. And they have another standard for you. Another standard for others. And they tell you, do not kill. And when they get it right, you should obey it. But what will they do? They'll try to kill Jesus, won't they? So don't follow their examples. These guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Okay? And here's an example of what Jesus says about these guys. Look what it says. Based on them having a standard for themselves and a standard for others. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. Look at that word bind. If I bound you, that means, that means I have put you in a situation that you can't get out. And they put people under these rules and these regulations, and they obligate the people. They bind them. Say, so you're bound to do this. We are the interpreters of Moses' law. And you're under an obligation to keep that rule that they give you and there's no way out. Now notice how these burdens are described. That they bind upon people. First, it's called in verse 4 heavy burdens. You see that? Heavy. Heavy burdens. And look at the second word. Hard burdens. Hard to bear. Uh, heavy, you fall under the weight of it and you can't even hold it up. It's, uh, it's hard to keep the commandments that these people lay upon them. Heavy and hard. Heavy burdens. Hard to bear. Uh, they turn people into beasts of burden. You know, and uh, instead of human beings. Now, just the opposite of what Jesus does. Remember when Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that what? Labor, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And here's his answer. Here's his reason. Because my yoke is easy. Now look at verse 4. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, but look at there. Hard to bear. My yoke is easy. What kind is there? Hard. Look. My yoke is easy, Jesus says, and my burden is light. Remember when he says that? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. What kind of burden do they give you? 
Look at verse 4. Heaven. You see that? Jesus offers a light burden. They offer what kind? Heaven. They offer a hard burden. Jesus offers light. See the difference? What is that difference? Why is it that they are burdening and binding these people with these obligations, but when Jesus, you follow Jesus, his rules and regulations seem to be light? It's because he yokes us to himself. Just like you put a big yoke over two cattle and the weight is distributed and two can do more than one. It's much easier for two oxen to you know, pull whatever the plow than it would be for one. For one it would be heavy, but make two in this life. Well, we are yoked to Jesus. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so... We're yoked to Jesus, and He's carrying the load with us. And that's what makes it a light. See, to be a follower of Jesus, the burden isn't heavy. So that's what He says. He says they, they put these heavy burdens and hard burdens upon the shoulders of men like you were a beast of burden. And then look at this. It says, but they themselves, at the end of verse 4, will not move them with one finger with one of their fingers. They won't lift one of, they won't even lift a finger to lift the burden to help you. But Jesus, he takes the burden upon himself. He yokes us to himself. So, they're strict on you, but they're lenient on themselves. You carry the full weight, and they won't even lift a finger. Lenient on themselves, strict on you. Hypocrite. Now, I like to watch occasionally the show called Undercover Boss. Anybody ever see this? Yeah. It's a great one. Boss goes undercover, he gets disguised on. And you know what happens? He discovers he can't do the work that his workers can do. He has these jobs for them to do, and now he has to do the job, and guess what? He's not capable of doing it. He's laid a burden on his employees that he can't even accomplish. So by the end of the show, you know, he's usually lightening the burden. So well, I realize that you need to have a you know forklift, and so we're going to get you a forklift. You have to carry it on your shoulder. And uh, that's what these Pharisees are like. They have put this burden on people. Okay. Now, what he does in verse 5, he warns against, not only does he warn against their, their, you know, their restrictions and their <clears throat> Phariseeism and the heavy burdens, but now he warns against their adulation, the need for adulation. Look at verse 5. But all their works, whenever they do something, they do to be seen by men. Whenever they decide to do something, they do it so they'll be seen by people. Just the opposite of what Jesus teaches. He says when you pray, don't stand up in the temple and pray like this to be seen by men. He says go into your closet. He says, when you do your good deeds, don't do them before men that you'll be seen, because if you do that, your reward is right now. You won't get a reward from your father. When you fast, he said, don't put a big old scowl on your face. And somebody said, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fasting. <laughs> Jesus says we're to be seen by God, not by men. And when God sees our, hears our prayers and sees our fasting and sees our good works, then he rewards openly for what we've done in secret. 
So we can see that the Pharisees, what they want when they do something is adulation. That's what they're concerned about. So we need to make sure as believers, as followers of Jesus, when we do what we do, we should do our good works, in a sense, under the radar. So not so many of us want credit. We want publicity. We want to be interviewed. We want everybody to know when we've done something. Many of the philanthropists will give a million dollars, they'll give ten million dollars, but guess what? It's all over the news for the next three days. Well, they got their reward. And unfortunately, many Christians are the same. They want credit when they do something. And we shouldn't want credit. We don't need publicity. We don't need our name out there. But the Pharisees do. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's condemning their need for adulation. Then look at verse Middle verse 5, he says, They make their phylacteries broad. That's those leather boxes that they put on their foreheads and on their wrists, forearms, that had little scriptures in them. And, you know, you're just supposed to put those there. In fact, originally, we don't even know whether they were something that was to be done literally. But what he was saying, you should remember scripture. You should have it on your forearm, on your forehead. And they make these leather boxes, they put scripture in there to remind them to obey the word of God. And finally they said, hey, everybody needs to know I memorize scripture. And so they made the boxes big on their arms and on their heads. And when they walk around, well, there's a scripture memorization person. There's a, there's a holy moly person over there. <laughs> and not only do they make those boxes bigger to hold the scripture, in verse 5 he says, they enlarge the borders of their garments. And uh, all these come out of Deuteronomy. And it's, uh, it's talking about probably the prayer shawl. Uh, uh, and they had little tassels. The scripture talks about uh, garments or prayer shawls that have tassels on the corners. So you have four of them. On each corner you have a four little things. But what they've done is they broadened. They made it wider so they could put six of them on or eight of them on. You know. These little tassels were like equivalent to, um, let's say, a rosary today. We have your beads, you know, and you feel a bead, and it reminds you to say, Our Father, Our Heaven, and these different things. Just a reminder. And they would hold these tassels, and they would rub them in their hands. It would remind them of scriptures and things of that nature. So they broadened them. Uh, I'm thinking of... Uh, of uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, the late Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. It's very interesting. He decided one day that he was going to put on his robe, he was going to put stripes on his robe as a judge. No one had ever put a stripe on your robe as a judge. Only the PhD academic professors get to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> and he put, he put, not only did he put stripes, but gold stripes. And not only did he put the normal three that an academic robe had, he put four. Because he was the chief justice. And uh, it became, in the, in the Supreme Court, it sort of became a, an inside joke, you know, that he would always wore these, these stripes. And so what you have here is you have something that is going to distinguish you as a Pharisee from the rest of the crowd. And people are going to say, hey, there's somebody that's important. There's someone that's spiritual. And they want this adulation. They want to be seen. And this is how they're seen. They draw attention to themselves by these kinds of 
clerical collars, maybe we'd say today. A guy who goes around, wears a clerical collar. And a great big golden cross that maybe he hangs down and he sticks in his shirt pocket. And you say, oh, there's a, there's a religious leader there. You know, clerical collar. Now, why does he do that? Well, in order to be noticed. In order to distinguish himself from the rest of the crowd. So you'll know, there is a priest. And that's I understand that it's not always a bad motive in this case, but it does distinguish you from the rest of the crowd. And Jesus says the Pharisees are doing it for the sake of adulation, because they want to be seen. Look what he says in verse 6. They love the best seats at feast, and the best seats in the synagogue. This is describing the Roman banquet. Uh, the Roman banquet, which was a reclining banquet, seating was arranged based on your social status. And the people who had the highest social status got the best seats at the feast. And even in the synagogues in the first century that, were, that met in homes, they didn't have buildings like we think of synagogues today, they also had a meal. And these guys wanted the best seat, the seat of honor. Because this was a honor-shame society. And an honor-shame society you recognize status. And so here we have, uh, they want the best seats. They want to be in the seats of honor there. And in verse 7 it says this. Something else they love. They love the greetings in the marketplaces. To be called by men, Rabbi! Rabbi! Uh, literally, great one! what it means here. Great one! There's the great one! There's the rabbi! There's the great one! There's the great one over there! See? Uh, that means you're not a great one. You know, there's the great one. And again, that's this honor-shame society in which you have in the Middle East. And uh, it was expected that people would address their social superiors with respect. And so, in this rabbis, they would call them great ones. They would give them accolades of respect. So, this is Jesus talking about, pretty much, the behavior of the Pharisees. Okay. Now, he goes and he talks about the behavior of his followers. And he's going to give three instructions. Look at verse 8. But you. Oh, now we have the switch. You see that? But you... Do not be called rabbi. These guys are going to be teachers out there. When Jesus ascends, in fact right now there's some what, teachers, but Jesus is going to ascend, they're going to take his message, and he says, don't you allow people to assign honor to you in this, respect, in this way. Don't allow them to call you great one or rabbi. Why not? Look at this. For one is your teacher, there's only one great one, the Christ, and you are all what? Brethren. Okay. There's only great one. There's only one great one. And guess what? That great one ain't you. You're not the great one. What are you? You're all what? You're siblings. You're all equals. And God's kingdom, guess what? We're all equals. There's no great one. There's only one great one. Our job isn't to accept adulation and make disciples for ourselves. Our job is to make disciples for him. Okay? That's instruction number one. Now look at instruction number two in verse nine. 
Do not call anyone on earth your father. Now there's a verse that has caused some confusion. Do not call anyone on earth your father. Why not? What's the reason? But it says at the end of verse 9. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. Now, most commentators can't even come close to the meaning of this verse. Because there's no indication ever that the Pharisees or the scribes ever had anyone call them father. So what in the world is he talking about? Don't call anyone father. So you come up with all these screwball ideas. This is an admonition that we're not to call a priest father. A Roman Catholic priest. Don't say yes, Father. Why not? Because you only have one faith. So we're against Roman Catholics because, one, they call their priest Father, and it says what? Don't call anyone Father. Or we think, boy, did I not call my dad Father? It says don't call what? Anyone Father. I hope you don't call your dad Father. You'd be breaking Jesus' commandment. That sounds like a light commandment, doesn't it? <laughs> That'd be a heavy burden. <laughs> so what we've discovered because of research in the past few years and some of the Greek and Roman text of the first century being translated for us, we now know that Caesar was called the father of the fatherland. And that's what this reference is to. Caesar was the father of all those under him in the Roman Empire. He was considered the chief patron from whom all the blessings of Jupiter flowed down through Caesar and out to the masses of people. And this is probably a reference of not calling even Caesar himself father. Why should we not call him father on earth? Because you have one father and that's the father who is in heaven. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, O children, here below. That's what we're to do. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Look, give us this day our what? The blessings come down from that Father. So we shouldn't be looking to another Father to supply our, our needs. And that's what the people in Rome did. They looked to their patrons as those who provided for their needs. And we're not to do that. We're to have faith in God that he'll provide for our needs. Okay. Now, instruction number three. Verse 10. And do not be called teachers. Do not be called teachers. Again, just telling us to beware of adulation. For there is one teacher, your teacher, and that is Christ. So again, we have these instructions. Okay. Now, you really want to be a great one? Here's what you have to do. Look at verse 11. But he who is greatest among you, let him be your what? Servant. God measures greatness in terms of servanthood. Okay. And in this case, it's the greater person, at least in the way people would think of it, who serves. And even Jesus, he bows down and he washes the feet of his disciples probably including the feet of Judas Iscariot, the very man who's going to betray him. So here we have an example of servanthood. That's how God measures greatness. Okay, now look at verse 12. And whosoever exalts himself, like the Pharisees, 
like any other Christian who wants credit for everything and wants a title, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Doesn't say might be humbled. It says what? Will be humble. It's a statement of fact. And he who humbles himself will what? Will be exalted. Doesn't say might be exalted. Will be exalted. May not be in this lifetime, but in the time to come, God will exalt us and we will reign with Christ. So what we have here is we have uh, a warning. And this warning uh, helps us to avoid the two extremes, in my opinion. The first extreme is ceremonialism. Uh, this is the, uh, the, the fault of many of the high churches, where the, uh, the priest uh, you know, wears his robes, and he wears his collars, and he wears his, uh, you know, all of his jewelry, and he says, instead of saying God, he says God, you know, and all that kind of stuff. To distinguish himself from others, that would be equivalent of broadening your phylacteries and, and, and your, or wearing bigger phylacteries and broadening your borders and all of that. Beware of ceremonialism that draws attention to yourself. But also, I think it helps us to avoid the other extreme that we find in the low church. That would be like Baptist churches, Bible churches. And that's the extreme of showmanship. When we get on there, we put on a production, and we're loud, and we're boisterous, and we're demonstrative, and uh, it's still doing the same thing. The audience is a spectator, and guess what? They're looking at the great ones up there. And so you have to watch out, because this, these sins that Jesus is describing are so subtle, they affect the, the high church, and they can affect the low church. And our job is not to draw attention to ourselves, but our job is to serve others. See, that's the important thing. So, and I think that both extremes, whether it's the high church ceremonialism, or it's the low church showmanship, distracts from real worship. We're to worship God in what? Spirit. And I think it also... Uh, becomes a substitute for service. It looks like we're doing something up there, and guess what? We're doing it to be seen. We're not really doing the things that Jesus wants us to do under the radar where we're not seen, and only one sees us. So this is an admonition and a role for all of us to live by. So then next week, we will now begin the Woe series. And if you look through... Uh, Verses 13, you know, all the way down to uh, like 29 and even past there, you'll see that the repeated word there is whoa, 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 okay? which means judgment, judgment upon the Pharisees and those who follow their ways. And the thing is that if we follow those ways, we too are under the woe instead of under the blessing. So that's what we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you for uh, a passage like this that convicts us of uh, our attitude and our motivation for doing things. We can do the right things at times for the wrong reasons. And sometimes, Lord, the things that we do actually hinder true greatness, which is serving others, sacrificial giving being charitable and merciful and compassionate to others.
Oh Lord, help us to take these rules to heart and help us not just to uh, hear the teaching, but help us to obey it. Help us to put this into practice in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. <laughs> Everybody, you pray, please.